All right, we're going to jump into a series we've been doing uh, called Follow, as Karen said. And I'm excited about today, um, we're going to be talking about uh, building, uh, sustaining, creating, uh, what it means to be or have a discipleship culture. Culture is a really interesting thing. Uh, I've talked about this a lot. Uh, cultures fascinate me, and all a culture is, the short definition is, it's just a group of people that hold the same value system. And a cult, so a culture can be as small as a family, can be as large as a nation or a whole region. So culture is an interesting thing. And cultures... Um, often find the path of least resistance. So they become something not because people were intentional about it, but because it was just kind of how we arrived. It's kind of like when you go to Waffle House. Nobody actually goes to Waffle House. It's just where you end up because everything else is closed. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this comes from a previous youth pastor, so I know it's true. Um, but I want to talk a little bit again about the culture, how to, how to create it, how to sustain it, how to multiply this, this culture. And so we're going to talk about that uh, for, for just a little while. And so I want to start with... Um, just a scripture, I've read this many, many times, Matthew 28, 18. Um, this passage, I think, is probably preached more often than just about any other passage in the Bible. And it's just talking about, it's Jesus' last words to the disciples about what it is that they were called to do. The reason he had come, the reason he had spent three years discipling them, building into them, it was something that he was super intentional about. And, uh, and he mentions that in, in 18 through 20, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I won't read it all, but he says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's a big, big stinking deal. I know that's, that's a theological term. Big stinking deal about the fact that the authority had been given to Jesus now. He, he, he died on the cross. He'd gone into, the Bible says he, he'd gone into the tomb for three days and then he came out victorious. He was resurrected. We talk about that always on Easter. And the, and the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is proof that your sins have been forgiven. The sacrifice was accepted because he came back alive again. And so he says, because of all this authority that I've been giving, now I'm giving it to you. That's what he'd been trying to train the disciples to understand, that, that, that now the authority was in them. Um, so often we say, God, would you do this? And, and God's up there going, I've already done my part, right? Now you have to do your part. When are you going to begin to take authority that I've actually given you? And if you don't know your authority, the devil will have a heyday with you. He'll, he'll play with every single thing in your life, your relationships, he'll play with your money, he'll do anything he can to destroy you and take advantage of you, but he can only do it through your ignorance. He can't, he can't take away something. If you know your, where your authority lies in whatever scenario or whatever relationship or whatever arena that you have, if you know your authority in it, the enemy can't attack you. and He can attack you, but he just can't prevail because the Bible says that he's been defeated already. So the next passage, after Jesus has said, all authority has been given to me, I've been training you in this, I've gotten you ready, now you're ready, this is what he says. He says, because all authority has been given to me and now it abides in you, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So I mentioned this before, the word Christian uh, or Christianity appears three times in the New Testament, and the word disciple appears over 300 times. So 297 more times than the word Christian, um, God mentions the word disciple. So Christian is important, nothing wrong with the word Christian. Uh, I hope you're a Christian. <laughs> but more importantly, it's, it's about being a disciple and what that means. And Jesus is very clear about it. It's not, it's not an add-on. It's not an addition to. It's something that Jesus said, if you're going to be a follower, then what my expectation is you are going to become a disciple. C.S. Lewis rightly identifies the mission of the church this way. I put it up on the screen. He says, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ to make them little Christ." Christians, little Christ, that's what that word means. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. 
God became man for no other purpose. This is what Jesus came to do, to make men disciples. <laughs> That's what he did with the 12. Uh, it's what he told the 12 to do, to go out and make disciples. And every disciple makes another disciple. And by the time 300 years had passed, the Roman Empire, 50-something percent of the entire Roman Empire of that day, um, the, the greatest um, nation-building process that had occurred up in that time, 50-something percent of them were believers. No churches, because they would, they'd been uh, uh, persecuted uh, and often killed for their faith. Um, their leaders would rise up, and they'd find out who a leader was, and they would kill them, and another leader would rise in its place. So no sound systems, no radio, uh, almost hardly any written uh, materials. And in the process of all this, you see the church rise to a place where it takes over 50-something percent of the greatest culture that the world had ever known until that time. So there's a need in our culture. The culture, like I said, follows the path of least resistance. And so often, you know, we, we get caught up into a culture that we don't even recognize as a culture. We just kind of are in it, and we don't, we don't see ourselves in it. It's just kind of how it, how it what it looks like in our lives. But there's a need. There's a tremendous need for culture to receive some change, some aspect of Jesus in them. I share this all the time about cultures. Um, the design is that God has, if we have a culture like our southern culture or the culture in Dothan, that the kingdom culture overlays it and whatever's good in the Dothan culture or the southern culture shines through and agrees with and aligns with the kingdom uh, of heaven. And whatever doesn't, we just need to get rid of. And that's really challenging because we live in that culture on a daily basis, but so often we're called to be countercultural in so many different ways. And it's challenging because you feel the pressure of pushing back on a culture. So we recognize that. So here's some of the, some of the things that are going on, the need. Um, a poll was done recently, and 65% of adults claim to be Christians in the U.S., so that sounds really good. We're going to get to the actual number about what that means in just a second. But that means, um, based on the, the poll that they did uh, probably 10 years before, it's down 12%. So it's decreasing, not increasing. That's, that's a, not a good thing. Only 22% of millennials in our country today say they attend church once a month. And that's just attending a church, not necessarily being a disciple or being a believer. Another interesting trend is when fathers go to church regularly, 44% of the time their children will go to church too. Isn't that interesting? And if you flip that on its head and fathers don't go to church, 3% of kids go to church. So the father, there's such a need to reach fathers and make disciples out of fathers and mothers too and kids, of course, but you can see the need. Here's another way of looking at when Jesus said, go and make. It's, a, it's a, a verb structure, two verbs, go and make. You have to go out. It's intentional. and You have to make. That's intentional. Nothing happens by accident in discipleship. So this is Deuteronomy in the Old Testament version of discipleship. And this is in the easy-to-read version, the paraphrase. It says, listen, people of Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is the only God. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Always remember these commands that I give you today. Be sure to teach them to your children. Hear that? Be sure to teach them to your children. Because if you don't, the culture will teach its version of the commands to your children. If you're not intentional with your kids, and even if you are intentional, the culture is still going to try to father your children. So pay attention to that. Be sure to teach them to your children. Talk about these commands when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road. Talk about them when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them on your hands. Wear them on your foreheads to help you remember my teachings. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And so the picture here is whatever God's teaching us, Jesus goes on, he says, 
you're teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, right? And, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so there's this beautiful picture of the commands of Jesus in Scripture, but also the fact that he is alive right now. He didn't teach us something, and now he's a great teacher in, in history in the past, and we live by principles and rules and regulations. It's not how it works. Jesus is alive today to speak into your life. The Logos, the Word of God, the, the, you know, the Bible, what we call the Bible, is, is the, they're the boundaries, they're the, the guardrails to keep us and to help us know and understand and, and, and believe and grip the nature and the character of God, right? But at the same time, the, the rhema, another Greek word for, for word, is a way that Jesus speaks into us individually, into our life, into our culture, into the culture of this church, into the culture of our city. So you see this happening. There's a, there's a place for Jesus says where we teach people not just to obey the commands that have come in the past, but also to obey what he's saying to them now, to teach them to always be in relationship with him. There's an interesting thing about evangelism. Um, we talk in, in church terms. We talk about reaching people who don't, who, who don't know Jesus. We call that evangelism, but not discipleship. And I think that's a misnomer. I think that's a mistake that the church has called it evangelism because it puts the emphasis on conversion as opposed to a long-term process of relationship and a journey towards God and in God. So what happens is we get this mindset, the evangelism is getting them to pray the prayer. And so we turn it into, that's the end point, that's the win, is if I can get them to pray a prayer, somehow now they have become a Christian. You do not see Jesus doing that. You don't see Jesus doing that. Why? Because what he would say is, hey, come and follow me. And then he talked about um, the cost. He would say, I want you to follow me, and I want you to make a decision. So often we turn into salesmen, and we're trying to sell Jesus, right? <laughs> and any, I've done sales, and I, what I know is I cannot sell a product that is not the real deal, right? I just can't, because I, it, it, feels, it feels wrong because it is wrong, right? <laughs> to sell something, to lie, to manipulate, to make something better than it actually is. And you see this happen all the time. People do it, and, and people make tons of money doing this. But I could never do that. And, then, and we, if we're not careful, turn into salesmen for Jesus, and we're trying to get them to buy a product rather than to introduce them to a person. And then when we introduce them to a person, they have to decide what they're going to do with him, right? You have to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. Everybody, everybody is deciding what they're going to do with Jesus. Everybody is. Whether they believe him, whether they don't believe him, they're making a decision about what they're going to do with Jesus. I want you to look at a passage. This is Luke chapter 14, 26, 33. So it's a little bit long. I'm going to read it to you. This is also in the easy-to-read version. Um, and this is talking about what it costs. When you're going and making disciples, there's a cost involved that you must be willing to pay. And Jesus says, I want you, before you decide to be a follower of, of mine, before you really are all in, I don't want you to come into this with ignorance. I don't want you to, to misunderstand what I'm calling you to do. And so often in the church today, we don't do that. We don't challenge people to really go deep and understand who Jesus is, and we don't challenge them to really surrender everything to Jesus. What we do is we say, hey, if you just come to church, you know, if you just add Jesus to your life, if you'll create a new lifestyle, you get a new culture, and if you do that, then you get your, you know, your hell insurance and you're, all, you're good, and then you can just continue to live your life in a good moral way, but Jesus is an add-on, he's a benefit, he's somebody I talk about on Sunday, he's somebody I know about but I don't know personally. And we call that Christianity, but it's not. It's cultural Christianity, and it's not helpful. So here's Luke. This is what Jesus said. He says, if you come to me but will not leave your family, you cannot be my follower. That is hardcore, 
especially if you're Southern, <laughs> right? Because we go deep with our families. We don't, listen, you, you can't talk about, I can talk about my family, but you can't talk about my family. My family's all kinds of broken, and I know it, but don't you talk about it, right? You, you don't get to do that. So when Jesus comes and he said, we, listen, we see this all the time, especially when people first get married, and, and it happens lots of different cultures, but especially in the South. Um, the, the kids will come, the, the you know, young couple will come, they've got a baby now, and they'll come and they'll talk to Karen and I, and they'll go, you know, it's really a, a struggle with the grandparents, you know, where it's like, you know, they kinda, they're kind of getting into our life a little more than we want them to, you know, they're, in, they're invading our space, they're parenting rather than grandparenting, and so I ask them, I'm like, um, do you use them as babysitters? And it just goes quiet. <laughs> I'm like, do you pay them? And it goes quiet. So my, their assumption is, well, you know, they owe us that, right? I mean, they don't say that out loud. Nobody says that out loud. But they kind of owe us a little bit, right? So, so when they start getting into parenting, which is a challenge, maybe it's not the best way to do it, but when they start engaging into the child's life a little deeper than maybe they want, they, don't, they haven't counted the cost of that free babysitting, right? So if you want free babysitting, there's a cost that comes with free babysitting. It's just how that works. And so you can have tough conversations, and honestly, if your family's healthy and both you and, your grand, and the grandparents are healthy, you can have a conversation, and that gets sorted out quick. It becomes a blessing. And by the way, if you're a parent, give your, give your mom and dad the blessing of grandparenting, not co-parenting. It's not helpful, right? Don't, don't invite them into Don't create the space where you're forcing them to do the thing that you ought to do as a parent. That one's for free. You don't have to pay for that at all this morning. That was for free. So he goes on. He says, uh, if you're not, not going to leave your family, you can't be my follower. You must love me more than your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, even more than your own life. Whoever will not carry the cross that is given to them when they follow me cannot be my follower. He's like, this is, you don't get, you don't get to come on your terms. I don't know where we came to the place where I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to invite Jesus into my life. Man, that sounds so spiritual, right? You're going to invite Jesus into your life. Think about that phrase when you're talking about the God of the universe that you are going to invite Jesus into your life. It's a dangerous, dangerous way to think, right? What you are doing is you are surrendering your life to his. And if you, and if you don't do that, and if you're not willing to do that, you are not a disciple. You're just not. So make no bones about it. No, it it's just not how it works. He goes on. He says, if you wanted to build a building, you would first sit down and decide how much it would cost, right? You must see if you have enough money to finish the job. If you don't do that, you might begin the work, but you would not be able to finish. And if you could not finish it, everyone would laugh at you. This is what happens with Christianity. People get involved in the, into the Christian. I'm going to test it out. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to taste and see if the Lord is good, but I don't really like it, right? I'm not, I'm not buying the, I'm not buying, it's like when you go to Sam's Club on the taste thing, you know, that's how I go, that's how I go to get a free lunch sometimes, I just walk around and, and I put on a hat so I come through the second time, maybe they don't notice and I'm eating the free samples, right? <laughs> but you don't go and buy like the $10 bag of whatever it is, you just don't do that, you know, you just eat the free samples. And people do that with Christianity, they're like, I just want to taste it a little bit, I like the culture, I like that Christians are nice to me, I like those kind of things, but I'm not ready to buy into the whole program. He goes on, he says, um... This man begins to build a build, building, but he was not, not able to finish, finish it. And if a king is going to fight against another king, first he'll sit down and plan. If he has only 10,000 men, he'll try to decide if he's able to defeat the other king who has 20,000 men. If he thinks he cannot defeat the other king, he will send some men to ask for peace while that king's army is still far away. It's common sense, right? It is the same for each of you. Every single person who walks into this arena, 
You must leave everything you have to follow me. If not, you cannot be my follower or my disciple. You have to make a choice. I'm going to lay down the culture. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down what I want. I'm making Jesus the Lord of my life. And then this, this go and make implies duplication. In other words, I don't just make disciples. I make disciples that make other disciples. John Poulton in his book, A Today Sort of Evangelism, writes this. The most effective preaching comes from those who embody the things they are saying. Listen to this. They are their message. You are the only Bible some people are going to read. So you are the message. Whether we like it or not, it's still the truth. They need to look like what they are or what they are talking about. It is people who communicate primarily, not words. What communicates best is personal authenticity. So there was a survey conducted by Pew Research, and it said 57% of those classified as evangelical, remember we're talking about how many people claim to call themselves Christians, they believe that many religions can lead to God. So almost 60% of people who call themselves Christians believe that there, there's another way. And I shared this last week about if you think there's another way besides the cross, right? First of all, Jesus said there isn't. So I don't know where they got that. Somebody's not preaching the truth to them. But if you think there's another way, why would God send his son to a cross to be brutalized, to die one of the worst deaths that, was ever, that someone ever came up with? Why would he do that if there was any other way to come to the cross? And Jesus himself in the garden said, if there is another way, Father, I'm, I'm open to that idea. I'm paraphrasing, right? He said it three times. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, he endured the cross because of what was on the other side of it. And what was on the other side of it was you. That's what he did that for. He wanted you. He wanted sin to be out of the way so you could come and follow him, learn of him, understand his character and his nature, and become part of the family again. When mainline Protestant churches were asked the same question, an astounding 83% believed that other religions could lead to God. Additionally, 82% believed that there is more than one true way to interpret the teachings of Christianity. Here's a scary statistic. 23% of the Protestant ministers surveyed did not strongly disagree with the statement that one can obtain salvation through religions other than Christianity. So 20, almost a quarter of the pastors preaching in churches don't even believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They're like, ah, there are other ways, right? It's incomprehensible to me that almost 25% of the pulpits in Protestant churches today will be occupied by pastors who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's frightening, but it's true. Born-again adults were asked about their goals in life. You know, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? 80% of them claimed having a deep personal commitment to the Christian faith was a top priority in their life. When those same believers were asked to identify the most important thing to accomplish in life, only 20% selected something directly related to spiritual growth. In other words, 80% of them said that Jesus was the priority in discipleship and living their life for God was the priority but only 20% of them were actually doing it. So just, just because it quacks doesn't make it a duck. We've had that conversation before, right? So the survey revealed that nearly a third of the respondents selected being a good parent, raising good kids, and having happy kids as more important than doing God's will and raising my kids to be Christians. I had the privilege yesterday of, of attending a funeral for a, a pastor who's in his 90s when he passed away. Uh, John D. Reese, some of you guys knew him, passed away this last Wednesday. 
and his kids, he said one requirement for his funeral was all of his kids had to speak at the funeral. So the pastor, his pastor got up and shared like maybe a 10-minute message, if not, if not less than that. It gave plenty of room for them to talk. And the whole time, everything they said about their dad, for the, for the whole time, there's four of them, four kids, three sisters and a, and a son, all of them said, my dad was an example to us, and he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He said, not only was our, he our, our father, but he was our pastor. And every friend we ever had, he was their pastor too. They said, oftentimes, he would connect with their friends on a deeper level than they did. <laughs> and he would win people to Jesus. Like they, one of them told the story, they were at uh, Flower. He was visiting at Flowers Hospital, and he and he bumped into a guy while he's washing his hands in the bathroom at Flowers Hospital. Led the guy to Jesus in the bathroom. Right? <laughs> this is just who he was. If you, I didn't know him well, but if you know know of John D. Reese, you knew about this guy. It's kind of just who he was. Um, and his, his daughter said years later, they were at a gas station, and, he's, and he was pumping gas, and there was a guy across who pulled up and started pumping gas. So they had, you know, however long it takes to pump gas, right? And so he started asking him about his walk with God and then started challenging about who Jesus was, and maybe it was time for him to make a decision for Christ. And he said, you don't remember me, do you? He said, you led me to the Lord already in Flowers Bathroom a few years ago because <laughs> I've been serving God ever since, and I'm a pastor. And so John E. Reese says, well, yeah, but are you saved? <laughs> right? I don't know if he said that. I made that part up because it fits into my sermon, right? But this is my point. What happens is that it can't just be something that you say in name. It can't be just a culture where you come to church on Sunday. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you actually have to lay down your life. You don't get an option. It's not an optional. Jesus didn't say Matthew 28 and Matthew 28 that it's, it was a suggestion for you to go and make disciples. It's a command, right? Because he has the authority, you can walk into this. And so there's some challenges about, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we, why don't we reach people? Why don't we go? Why don't we make disciples? Why is it so hard to do this? Let me just say this before I get into that. Jesus didn't say, teach them everything I commanded. He said, teach them to obey everything I commanded. But what happens in most churches is we... we we preach good sermons. We teach good lessons. We have whole small groups built around discussing God, and that's awesome, and I love it. Even in our songs, if we're not careful, we sing about God and not to him. We create this idea of God, and we romanticize the idea rather than romance the person. And Jesus is calling us out nowadays, and he's saying, enough of that. That's not what I've been doing, and he's calling pastors, thank God, who will speak out into this and not be harsh and not be hard, just truthful and say, hey, if you're going to follow Jesus, count the cost. And listen, if you want to build a big church and if you want your name on the front and if you want everybody to respect and honor you in the city, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that because you make people angry. You upset the apple cart. You upset religious people in the city. You upset conformity and political Christianity. You upset it all the time. And, I, and I'm, I, don't, I think I'm just stupid because I kind of like it actually doing that. I've never wanted to be the guy with my name on the, on the sign out there. I don't care about that. It's not that I don't want to reach tons of people, that we don't want our church to grow. I'd love to blow out this wall back here, turn this sanctuary sideways, and, and have twice as many people in a service and maybe do two or three of those services. I'd love to have that kind of impact. But it's not going to happen with me preaching nice things and saying nice things about Christianity, and there's no responsibility on you as a believer. You have to make a decision. Because here's the thing, if we grow that big, if we grow and we have that kind of, those kind of numbers, are we going to have real impact 
unless the people are real believers in the first place? And the answer is no, we're not. We're not going to change anything. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. So why don't we go? Why is it, why is it so hard? I'm, let me just present to you three things, I think, three reasons. One, we don't go because we're afraid. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't have all the answers? What if I don't have all the right, right words? You are going to say the, th- the wrong thing. <laughs> you're not going to have the right words. You're going to mess it up, I promise you. You're going to mess it up. But listen to what Jesus said in Luke 21, 15. I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I'll do it. See, the connection to this is I don't go, not because I, I'm, I'm afraid to say the wrong thing, it's because I'm not connected to Jesus and trusting him that he's going to give me the wisdom and the understanding to do what he's called me to do. I keep trying to do this in my own strength. So here's where this gospel discipleship thing fails and evangelism fails. You need to go and preach Jesus to everybody. This is what people do. They go, you, you, you have a responsibility. Shame on you if you're not. Like, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. You know why? Because what will happen is you'll go out and you'll be disconnected from the one who's trying to reach them anyway, and you'll create your own agenda, and you'll try to disciple people in, into you rather than into Jesus. And what I've challenged us all to do is to recognize Jesus is already doing it. He said the harvest is already white. You don't have to come up with a harvest. It's there. It's already there. All you have to do is trust me and, if, and pray. This is what he said. Pray that to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the field. Right? And so will you get better at it? Yeah, of course you will. But the way you get better at it is hear what the Lord is saying when he's going and he's, he's speaking. You want to try to talk to somebody about Jesus? Trust that the Lord is going to be with you when it happens. Second reason we don't go is because we're distracted. Luke 10, 40. This is a story of, of Mary and Martha. We've heard this before. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. This is a picture of the church. We get so busy, like the older brother, doing all the things for the Father, we don't have time to know the Father. And that's wrong. It's wrong. One thing, we don't, you don't often see us at our church doing things on Saturdays. There, there's a bunch of reasons why that's true, but one of the biggest reasons is that's a family day. We try to hold it and save it for families. Why? Because in our culture, everybody's busy. It's just part of our culture. We get it. So we try not to push too hard. We try to get everything done, do things on Sundays, do things during the week. Yeah, so that at least a Saturday, you get a Saturday, you can do something with your family, or you can just relax, maybe make it your Sabbath, right? Even if Sunday isn't your Sabbath, because so often our Sundays aren't restful. And so the challenge is, if you get to know who Jesus is, he's going to talk to you about what you need in your life, what you need to do. And the challenge is, when distractions begin to come at you from every direction, Jesus is going to get your attention again. He's going to say, hey, that's not important. I want to talk to you about what he is. Mother Teresa was asked one time, what causes people to lose their spiritual passion? And she replied with one word. Guess what it was? Distractions. The one thing that steals people's spiritual passion is they get distracted from the main thing. I was, I was touched in that funeral yesterday because it just reminded me again because I Karen and I have this conversation often are we doing what we ought to be doing and I don't mean trying to please God with my works if you've been here at all long enough you know that's not what we teach we teach grace we get that but it means that I have a limited amount of time in this world and I want to know that what I'm doing is actually the right thing it's the one thing that Jesus has called me to do it's the thing that I, I, I have to give my life away for And it gets very specific, especially the longer you know the Lord. He gets very specific about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't. There's a ton of great things out there. I get letters in the mail all the time here at DCF and emails constantly. Hey, if you you really love Jesus, you would. 
And I go, first of all, <laughs> you don't get to tell me that, right? So thank you, but I'm not signing for that piece of paper. And secondly, Jesus is quite capable of talking to me about what he wants me doing. And sometimes I say no to things that are church things. But I'm the pastor. <laughs> exactly. But I'm a pastor second. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus first, and that matters. Jesus told the Ephesian Christians who had been busy doing lots of good things in Revelation 2.4, he said this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Here's the picture. They were doing all these great things for Jesus, just like the older brother. And remember we preached into this a couple weeks ago about the fact that the younger brother is the one we always focus on because he's the one out there sinning, <laughs> right? But he didn't know his father. But the story is really about both brothers and the older brother specifically who also didn't know his father even though he's working in his father's fields every single day. And a little bit angry about it because he felt like because he'd worked so hard, the father owed him something. And I come across this with Christians all the time. Especially when crisis hits. The sickness occurred or this, this, this tragedy in life where I don't understand this. And immediately, immediately, rather than understanding, having grown an understanding of who God is, how the world works, the fact that we live in a broken world and there's an enemy that is against everything that God is for. Rather than go into that and recognize it and lean further into God, people begin to accuse the Lord of the things the devil does. And if you're doing that as a Christian, you might be an older brother because you feel like, I've worked really hard for you, God. I deserve a life of ease. I deserve a life without disease. I deserve a life that is never, have, never has to fight the devil. But you don't. And the reason I say that is because Jesus didn't. Jesus fought the devil too, right? He pushed back. When the enemy came in, when he was, in the, in, he was led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God, take that as a sermon, right? that maybe you're in the wilderness because God brought you there. But everything the enemy said, even though it was Scripture, Jesus came back with an appropriate understanding of the relationship he had with the Father, where all the, all the enemy had to offer was religion. He was using Scripture out of context, and it works on most people because people don't know the God of the Scripture, let alone the Scripture. So it's challenging, right? Matthew 6, 19, 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven. The, other, the last reason why we don't go is because we've forgotten our first love. And, and we lost connection with him. So we're like, the things that are valuable, my career and my kids, and listen, those things are all valuable. It's not that they have no value, they do. And, and they're more valuable than most other things, and, and that's Okay. But it just, you just have to put them second and put Jesus first. Remember he said, if you don't leave your father, your mother, your brothers, your sisters, your kids, you're not worthy of following me. You're not living a life of a follower. So I just want to challenge you. There are times when to sustain a discipleship culture, you have to speak into the culture and oftentimes be counter to it. And you have to take a stand. So let me just share this. I, 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 this is about sustaining a discipleship culture because this is where it, gets, where it goes awry when we try to take a stand, right? We hear a message like this, and we're like, yeah, it's time. I'm going to stand up against those evil sinners, right? And so I've worked in, in and out of church for the last three decades. I've been, always been pastoring churches and leading churches and planting churches, but also at the same time because planting a church often doesn't come with any, any uh, salary. So I'm often working a full-time job while I'm working a full-time job planting a church. I've done it many, many, many times. 
So two things that I've noticed, critical observations that I've noticed when, when I've been doing that. One of them is that Christians are often indistinguishable, indistinguishable from non-Christians in the workplace. Can't tell the difference. So it's like, if we're going to be salt and light, which is what Jesus said, you're, if you're different, if something's different in you, you're going to draw some attention. You're going to capture people's attention if you're different. If you're not, what's different? Nobody's going to hear what you have to say. Secondly, Christians are frequently more concerned about altering the political landscape rather than transforming the hearts of men and women. So now I've, I've, been, I've been preaching. Now I'm going to get to meddling. You guys ready? So hang on to your hats. Put your seatbelts on. This last point, you think the last couple have been challenging. So let's talk about Trump. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Half of you guys would get up and leave if I started talking about Trump. But here's what we do. Again, we, we made Trump. Our, I, I love President Trump for a million different reasons, and he drives me crazy for a million others, right? And if you have any kind of sense, you recognize this. But we, if we're not careful, we turn him into this political savior that he's going to rescue us and he's going to bring in the, you know, the beautiful day. He's going, to bring, he's going to ride in on a white stallion, right? And, and, his, and the one thing that was good about him was he was a businessman and not a politician. So he just got stuff done. That ought to wake all of us up and go, hey, maybe if we quit putting presidents in office who are politicians and put people in there who can actually get stuff done, maybe our nation would be better doesn't matter which political spectrum you lean into. But here's my point. So often Christians come at this, I'm going to change the world by changing the politi political arena. So let me, say, let me challenge you with this. If you don't vote, you don't get to complain in America. So if you don't vote, don't talk to me about what's going on in America. You don't get, you don't get to do that. So go vote. And, and do some study before you go vote. Don't go vote because all the other Christians said they're nice people. And don't vote for them because they're nice people. Right? That's not always helpful. Vote for them for all kinds of good reasons, but don't vote for them just because you've heard they were good people. Do your research and vote for them with your conscience from the Lord because more than likely they're not going to be a believer. So every, you don't need a believer in office. It would be nice. I would love that. But so often what we do is we get people in there and we want them to be religious rather than actual believers or actual followers of Jesus. In all truth, it's difficult for a real follower of Jesus to get into office because they'll take a stand on issues that the culture will say no to. So it's just the way it works. So you're not going to win politically. That's not how you're going to change the world. You're going to change the world because you change and transform people's hearts. And that's what disciple making is. It's actually changing the heart of a person. So I want, I want good things to happen in our political world. I love it. But it's not always going to change people's lives. So often, Christians are defined by the world primarily by what they oppose. One of the biggest challenges you see in this is the context around homosexuality and transgender, and all those, all those issues become hot-button issues, which is another reason why, how do you say that if you're running for office? Our friend Tyler, who comes here and preaches from up Northlands, he's a pastor up there, was running for, I think it was city commissioner in Norcross, and he said, every single time I would be in an interview with somebody, he said, they always ask me, as a pastor, what do you think about homosexuality? Because they knew he's going to offend so many people when he says this. So Tyler said, I had to trust the Lord in how I answered that question. Billy Graham did a phenomenal job. Go look this up. He made a comment because they asked him about it. And he said, homosexuality is a sin. You know how I know that? Because that's what Jesus tells us, what the word tells us, what scripture tells us. He said, you know what else is a sin? pride, and lying, and he just starts listing all the other sins that everybody else was living into. 
So he said, so the issue isn't homosexuality or any of those things. He said, the issue isn't stopping that or stopping lying or any of those things. He said, the issue is you're dead and God wants to make you alive. And that's what Jesus does. So it's challenging to take a stand. But can you love homosexuals? Can you love people? The Bible says, especially Jesus, he said, you have to love your enemy. Do good to those who despise and use you. Right? But we don't want to do that. We want to turn it into a political fight. We want to push back and we want to take a stand. I am not advocating at all that people become welcome mats or doormats for the world. That's not what God called us to do. But are you living into the real thing Jesus has called you to do? To go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey what Jesus commanded and in fact that he's going to be with them. Do you know how to share the story um, David Woodham just shared earlier that on Easter, we're going to talk about the story, the meta-narrative, the big story, how you fit into that big story. You, you know, our, the, the, the biggest culture in our world right now, especially in the West, is postmodernism, And all that means is that we, they don't like big narratives. They don't like, they don't like community stuff. They, like, they, they, want to be, they want to determine their world based on what they feel and what they think, and it's all subjective. It's my truth it's your truth, it's anybody's truth, but not the truth. And that's difficult for us older people to understand and to talk to people about because we're like, do you not understand that there are absolutes? And they'll say dumb things like, there is no such thing as an absolute. And I say to them, that is an absolute. So part of taking that stand is help them understand that their, their culture, their mindset, their worldview is skewed. But let me just say this, if you don't know who you are in Jesus, how in the world are you ever going to bring somebody else into who they could be in Jesus? And so is it about getting them to stop sinning? I've shared this so many times, I use this as an illustration. Um, you know, you're going to have to get used to the F word. You know why? Because it's, re- it's replaced the D word and the H word and the A word in culture. Because used to, I remember when I went overseas, you couldn't say the A word on television, right? That was a no-no. Some of you guys are like, what's the A word? Just get with somebody, get with a teenager, they'll, they'll help you. So I went overseas, and it's like it's everywhere in that culture, <laughs> right? I come back, and somewhere along the, in the five or six years that I was gone overseas in a European culture, the American culture had changed, and that was now allowed. And so you know what happens? The envelope just keeps getting pushed further and further and further and further into depravity. Why? Because we are broken as humanity, and we are depraved as humanity. And we want what we want. And we, if, if we have to hurt other people to get it, then so be it. And that's the world that we are entering into to lay our lives down for those younger brothers who don't yet know Christ. And it's not easy, which is why you have to dig in, why you have to have a real relationship with Jesus, why you can't be against something more than you are for something. If you, if you start entering into a relationship with a person who doesn't know Christ and you're not for them and for who Jesus says they are, the, their identity, and you begin to draw out from them who God says they are, if you cannot do that, all you'll ever do is speak about their sin. And let me just be honest, whether they admit it or not, they already know that they are broken. I promise you. Nihilism is one of the worst worst sins and destructive ideologies that we deal with in this world. You know why? Because nothing works. Nothing matters. You see this all the time on the internet. It's just constantly, I, there's no reason for living. I wish I'd never been born. 
And in this, we get to inject life and say there's purpose. There's a reason for you to be alive. There's a maker. There's a God who created you. There's a father who longs to be with you. There's a relationship that you are completely missing. But if you don't have it, how in the world do you expect anybody to grab hold of it? Because all you're doing is asking them to change one worldview and one ideology for another one. And that's not what Christianity is. It's not what discipleship is. It's changing the broken world and submission to all this to a surrender to a person, to a father, to an older brother who loves us and wants to pour himself into us. Let me close with this. Discipleship is an intentional and long-term process. It's not going to happen overnight. Reaching people for Jesus is not going to happen overnight. Let me put a, I want to put something up here called the Engel Scale. So let me challenge you as believers. This is just a way of understanding the journey of people discovering God or discipleship like we talked about. And it's just simple. It's just people go from no idea about God all the way up to the top where they have a complete surrender and a new life in Jesus. And those are steps. And it's not always that pretty and it's not even. Some of those steps take a really, really long time. Some of them are shorter. Some of them, they're going to spend a year in those, in those areas. But those, those ideologies, that's understanding of who God is, does not happen overnight, which is why it's so dumb to knock on a door somewhere and say, if you were to die right now, where would you go? Why would you do that? That is not this at all. This is not a, that's not a journey. That's, that's a moment. And, and what happens is people have done that so often now that they think because they prayed the prayer that they were a follower of Jesus. And so we have so many false converts in the church who then begin to lead the church and it's political, and it's a mess, and it's nothing like what Jesus said we could have. I know this is challenging, but if we don't get there ourselves, if we don't understand this, we're never going to see the world around us change. So th- this is the Engel scale just simplified. It's going from this no idea about God all the way to complete surrender, and then lastly, this continued growth. At some point, they cross the line of faith, and every person's journey is different. Everybody's journey is different. So let me just give you a story. This is what, what, this happened, what, what it looks like in a journey. There's a guy out in Denver, and he was, he was praying, God, give me per- persons of peace, the model of Jesus. And we're going to talk about this. Persons of peace, this model of what Jesus, how, how Jesus brings people into your life who are ready for the harvest, right? And so this guy is at a, uh, at a uh, uh, gas station. Apparently, that's a great place to win people to Jesus, right? But he's at a gas station, and he's pumping the gas, and he's got his uh, golf cart, his golf uh, clubs in the back, and a guy across on the aisle says, hey, I, you guys play golf? And he says, yeah, I do. He goes, would you happen to be looking for somebody else because I'm playing golf by myself, and so often, you know, I, you need to at least two or at least, you know, a, four, a foursome. He goes, it's funny you should say that. We've got three, and we'd love somebody else. So they connect, exchange numbers, and that was the end of the conversation Till a week or two later. He calls the guy. The guy says, yeah, I'd love to go. They, he said, we go out about once every week or two, and we play somewhere within an hour or two of our house. So they start doing this. So there's a drive for about an hour or two, almost every week or every other week, where these two guys begin to build relationship and talk. And so this process, they just get to know one another. The, the, the believer invites this young guy into his home, has dinner with, their, with his wife and, and you know, their wives as couples. And on the next journey, they're driving up. The guy says to him, hey, could you help me with, your, with marriage? Because obviously your marriage is much better than mine, much stronger. Could you just help me? I need some help with marriage. Our marriage is not what it ought to be. And the guy saw an opportunity, and he said, I can. <laughs> he goes, but I'm going to have to drop Jesus all over the conversation because he's the one that changed our marriage. He said, now, if you're open to that, I can tell you about marriage. But if you're not, we can have a conversation about something else if you want. The guy goes, no, I'm interested. 
So he tells him this whole story about how he was so selfish and his wife was so selfish, more selfish than him always. It's always the wives. <laughs> you guys are looking too serious. <laughs> so he said, at some point he said, I, I understood the gospel. And he said, I, 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 my, my old way of living for myself and only me, trying to, he was always scraping out everything I could try to get. And then I discovered that Jesus had already given me everything that I was ever trying to, to grab hold of in my own strength. And he said, and one of those things was selflessness, the ability to love someone without an agenda. And he said, you know, like I'm loving you. <laughs> Within three weeks, this guy was a Christian. Here's the point. It's a journey. The average lifespan of this journey in, for most people is from two to four years. So let me ask you a question. Just a simple question. How many people do you have a relationship and they're not, they're not Christians, they're not believers? I've asked this before. And so how in the world are we ever going to reach people for Jesus if you don't have a relationship with them? But they're difficult. You were difficult. Some of you still are. I'm not naming names, I'm just saying. It's a process of growth. I'm difficult. Ask my wife. Sometimes I'm, I'm difficult. And it's a challenge, but it's to love them unconditionally going, I'm going to be intentional. Go to the same coffee house, right? Just pray and ask God, where's the best coffee, Lord? No, don't do that. That's unhelpful. <laughs> Lord, where do you want me? Go through the same checkout line at Publix or Walmart or wherever you shop, right? Get specific and be, become intentional about building a relationship. Invite people into the things you're already doing. Because here's what we always think. We always think that it's additional. They've, you're, you're saying, I'm going to have to do all this stuff, and man, my life is so busy right now, how in the world am I going to do it? Because you think it's adding something to your life when Jesus is just saying it ought to be your life, right? It ought to be your first priority. Seek first the kingdom of God. Everything else you need will be added to you. That's what Jesus is saying. So you've got to trust the process. You've got to trust that he knows what he's talking about. That doesn't mean quit your job. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't do something stupid, Right? But understand that part of this process is I've got to change my intentionality. I've got to think about now, how am I reaching out? How am I connecting with people who don't know the Lord? And then don't, you don't have to create something. You have to listen to what Jesus is saying to you already about who already has the potential for you to step into their life as you go. And that's what Jesus was talking about. So let me just wrap it up with these last three things. Just three practical applications for what it means to follow Jesus and really to, to be a disciple, to create discipleship culture and to, and to actually sustain it. One, you have to become confident, not in your own strength, but in the work Jesus is doing in you. Listen to this. Philippians 1, 3 says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he, everything about their relationship was a partnership in the gospel. That's what we all are doing right now. Look at, listen to verse 6. Being confident. He said, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, you don't have to come up with a plan. Jesus already has one. You just have to submit to his. So part of that is just going, God, talk to me about who I should reach out to. Who is that person of peace that you're placing in my life? I have a heart for and I begin to pray for and begin to invest in the relationship. Secondly, you have to become intentional. I'll mention that. There's no such thing as accidental discipleship. That's why Jesus said, go and make. You have to go and you have to make disciples. They're not going to happen accidentally. And lastly, don't forget your first love. I mentioned this. 
2 Corinthians 8, 5, it's a beautiful passage about how a local church comes together. He says, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So what does that look like? Jesus said, church is awesome. Being connected to believers is awesome. This culture that we're creating, it's awesome. But he said, the first thing you have to do is connect yourself to him. In our leadership in, in, at DCF, as we build what God is calling us to build, one of the things we say to all the leaders when they come on board is, we want your relationship with Jesus to be primary and your relationship with us in a leadership team to be secondary. Why do we do that? Because in that process, we can't play politics. You just can't. Because you got men and women in leadership roles who will look you in the eye and go, I don't know if that's what Jesus would do, Dave. So it keeps me honest. It keeps, because I have the same conversation. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to play favorites in the sense that I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to allow certain things because these guys give more money than other people, or I'm going to do this because they have greater gifts and they can, they can help the church along the way. I can't do that. I can't play favorites because my first love is to Jesus, and everything else comes from that. So I just want to remind you, this call that God has given us is an amazing thing, but you can't make something of someone else if you are not that thing. So let me finish with this scripture, Ephesians 2. God raised up, us up with Christ and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This is where we are as believers. In order that in the coming ages he might know the incomparable or he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is the relationship you must have before you can share it with somebody else. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you are trying to come up with a plan, you're missing the plan. Jesus already has one. Why is it that you find yourself so often, God orders your world and directs you. There's a passage in Psalm that talks about being led by, like a, don't be like the horse or the mule that has to be led by bit and bridle. In other words, circumstances and pain is what causes you to turn the direction that God wants you to. Can I tell you as a believer, that is the lowest form of communication with your father. It's what you do to toddlers. You Somebody said one time, they're like, I'm having trouble with my toddler being you know, disobedient, and uh, could you help me to know how to explain what he needs to do? <laughs> and this is actually to a friend of mine. My friend who also had a toddler says, why are you trying to explain anything to a two-year-old? Just make them do it. Now, two and a half, you're going to have to start explaining things, right? Because they discover their will. The point is, there's a point in your life where you are led by bit and bridle. Circumstances is what's driving you. Pain, heartache. I'm going to quit doing this because it hurts so much, right? Doctor, I can't do this. What should I do about it? He said, stop doing that. That's a good doctor, right? The whole idea is you're led by bit and bridle. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to lead you by his voice, by a real relationship within you where he's talking to you on a regular basis going, hey, I want this for you and I want you to do this and I want you to take this on and leave this alone. It's a constant relationship and communicating. You were created for good works beforehand. You don't have to come up with any of this. It's not an addition to, it's a surrender to. So I want to challenge you this morning. As we go from here, as we move into this time of Easter, 
Easter is awesome, but it's a cultural thing. We're going to do a lot of fun things. We'll have Easter egg hunts for the kids. Those are all fun things. I love those things. David Woodham's actually going to be preaching our Easter message. I told that somebody, somebody mentioned that the other day. They were like, Who's, you know, what's your message going to be on Easter? I'm like, I'm not preaching. They're like, are, you're, you're, you're the senior pastor and you're not preaching the Easter message? I'm like, well, you know, Woodham came to him and he said, hey, give his Michael Jordan on me. He's like, hey, I, I feel like I have something for the Lord. And I'm like, well, I, I don't feel like I have anything for the Lord on Easter Sunday. So have at it, brother, right? I, you don't think I could come up with something for Easter Sunday? I promise you, I could. But wouldn't you rather have something that God laid on David Woodham's heart, right, than me coming up with something religious? And I can. <laughs> I, I promise you I can. But I don't want that either. So I'm not putting pressure on you, Dave. You know that. We've talked about this. But here's my point. My point is we want to be a, a, a godly group of people who hear his voice for one another, through one another, and to one another. And that's creating a culture that says, I want this, whatever this is, I want to protect it and guard it because it's good and it's what Jesus is trying to build and I can't wait to bring people into this. I can't wait because it's life-changing and it's, it's worth giving your life away for. Amen? So I want to encourage you. As you lean into this, it feels like you're getting beat up a little bit, but part of that is because invitation also comes with some challenge. Jesus never gives one without the other. So the invitation is, I'm already doing it. Come and do what I'm doing. The challenge is, quit doing your own thing and surrender everything to him and watch what he can do with your life and watch what he can do through your life. Amen? Stand with me. So Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness. Um, Lord, when you spoke to Peter and told him he was no longer a pebble but a rock, Lord, he was part of the family. He was he was called by your name and no longer, he was no longer a, a, a fisherman, Lord. He was, he was a fisher of men. You called him into your family, into your business. And Lord, then he challenges you about going to the cross and you challenged him and said, get behind me, Satan, Lord. In two or three scriptures, you went from invitation to a massive challenge. And Lord, you're doing that in our lives as a, as a church. Lord, the promise is there's gonna be explosion of growth coming to DCF. But, Lord, it's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen because we are co-laboring with you. So, Lord, we want to hear your voice. We want to do what you're saying because in that place and in that place alone is life and life abundantly. So we surrender ourselves afresh and anew, Jesus, to what you are doing. Help us to hear your voice clearly and accurately, Lord, and to walk in it and see fruit come that's going to remain. It's in your name I pray. If you need prayer this morning, we'd love to pray for you up here. The ministry team will be here in just a second to pray for you. If not, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.